if you truly fear God, if you truly understand his ways, if you're really trying to apply his word to your life, then you will be characterized by gentleness, by submission to the will and purpose of God, and gentleness and graciousness with others. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Consider your own life for a moment. Do you live as if the kingdom of God is a present reality? Do you seek the Lord's help, asking Him for wisdom to help live each day faithfully and obediently? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of a series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says something really fascinating. He says, don't be conformed to this world. What he literally says is, don't allow the world to push you into its ideological mold. The fact is, the world's wisdom is not biblical wisdom. But do you know how to recognize and avoid the top ideological lies of the world that masquerade as godly wisdom? Let's join our teacher to find out more now on The Word Unleashed. If you choose in your pride to sit in judgment on the Bible's claims and to reject its clear claims to be absolute moral truth, that's fine. You can choose to reject it, those claims. And then you one day, someday, can stand before a holy God and try to explain to him why you thought it was intellectually naive to embrace his revealed word, but don't even think about going down the path and claiming that it doesn't claim to be absolute moral truth. So just as there is a wisdom from heaven, James wants us to know that at the same time, there coexists in our world a wisdom from hell. And here's the heart of the problem. Both of those two distinct wisdoms on the surface appear to be wise. But one edifies and the other destroys. One is a gift from God and the other is a trap from Satan. So how can you know if you're living according to God's wisdom or hell's wisdom? The world's wisdom is another reference the New Testament makes to it. Well, James immediately gives us a test by which we can discern which wisdom it is we live by. Verse 13, look at the fourth point that flows from this passage. Number four, the principal test for God's wisdom. The principal test for God's wisdom. Second half of verse 13, let him show, whoever thinks he's wise and understanding, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, this is a very difficult sentence, both in English, as you can see, it's a bit confusing, and in Greek as well, but let's see if we can make some sense of it. Start with the main verb. The Greek verb, or excuse me, the Greek word translated show means to prove or to provide evidence of something. So James is saying that a person can show or prove or provide evidence that he is living by God's wisdom, look at verse 13, by his deeds show or provide evidence or prove your wisdom by your wise deeds. This is pretty simple to understand. True biblical wisdom evidences itself in specific acts that reflect God's wisdom. 
if you're wise, you are going to make daily choices to do certain things that reveal or reflect that wisdom. That's what he's saying. But true biblical wisdom doesn't just show itself in occasional sort of isolated acts. Notice he adds, let him show godly wisdom in his deeds by his good behavior. A better way to translate that phrase, good behavior, is by his way of life. In other words, here's what he's saying. You are living by God's wisdom if your biblically wise actions are a consistent, sustained way of life. In other words, it's not just an occasional act of wisdom, you know, like a clock that's right twice, a, a broken clock that's right twice a day. You're not just occasionally displaying God's wisdom. Instead, it is a pattern of life. It is a way of life for you to act in accordance with God's wisdom. To put it another way, your life will be characterized by obedience to the Word of God. Characterized by is the key expression. Listen to the great commentator on James, Robert Johnstone. He says, we have here again what may be described as the central thought of this letter. That where religion has real saving hold of a heart and mind, it cannot, from its nature, but powerfully influence the outward life. In other words, listen, he's saying, if you've been really changed on the inside, then it's going to express itself in how you act. And that the more a Christian has of true wisdom and spiritual knowledge, the more manifestly will his life at all points be governed by his faith. John Blanchard puts it this way, pretty directly. The trouble with some Christians is that they seem to be suffering from spiritual measles. They are sanctified in spots. Their lives are a disappointing mixture of the occasionally marvelous and the often mediocre. And in a Christian, this is disappointing because it shows a lack of wisdom, which at the end of the day means a lack of obedience. But external acts, as important as they are, are not enough. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're following God's wisdom. You can be externally obedient to the Scripture and still not be living according to God's wisdom. Because true spirituality, listen carefully, true spirituality is not simply measured by what you do. The Pharisees did. It's also measured by what's in your heart. Notice verse 13 again. Let him show godly wisdom in his actions, and those obedient actions will be sustained as a way of life. And if it's the real thing, it will be at the same time expressed in the gentleness that comes with true wisdom. Here, James turns inward to look at the heart. According to James, biblical wisdom has two primary heart qualities associated with it. Verse 13, gentleness, and down in verse 16, purity. So gentleness will be in your heart if you are living by God's wisdom, if you're living in true obedience to the Scripture. There'll be gentleness. Now, what is this gentleness? Well, it's a very difficult word. It translates a Greek word that, frankly, is almost impossible to translate with one English word. Depending on the version of the scriptures you have, it's translated either as gentleness or meekness or humility. The first time we really encounter this quality is in Moses. 
In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we're told that Moses possessed this quality more than any other living man. And then when we come to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, we're told that Jesus was characterized by this quality. And moreover, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, in the Beatitudes, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that his true followers will be characterized by this attitude or this quality. So what is it? Well, when you look at this quality, it manifests itself in two different ways. It manifests itself toward God, and it also manifests itself toward other people. And you have to use a slightly different word, really, to capture its meaning if you're talking about its manifestation toward God versus its manifestation toward people. Let's start with how it manifests itself toward God. If you have this gentleness toward God, it expresses itself as a calm acceptance of your circumstances as from him for your good, and you refuse to complain or whine about those circumstances. It is an acknowledgement that God is God and a submission to his will in your life. James is going to come back to this later, and we'll deal with this more in detail as we get to the end, toward the end of the book, the end of chapter 4. But what I want you to see here is that the real attitude that this virtue is describing when it's referenced toward God, you could translate it submission or meekness. It's a mindset that gladly and freely and willingly bows to the sovereign purpose of God in your life. It's a mindset that says, God, you are God and you know what's best and I, I willingly accept what you bring. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, writes, this virtue comes from understanding our position as sinful creatures in relationship to the glorious and majestic God. It recognizes how unable we are in and of ourselves to chart our own course in the world. This virtue flows out of the conviction that God is sovereign over everything that happens in life and that he is at the same time both wise and good. And when you believe that about God, then you can accept your circumstances without complaining and arguing. Let me see if I can flesh this out for you a little bit. I think the the, the clearest exposition of this word as it references itself to God is found back in Psalm 131. Turn there for a moment with me. Psalm 131. It's a short little psalm that has great wisdom in it. David here speaks of this quality of meekness or submission to God. Here's how he describes it. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult or too marvelous for me. And then he gives an image that paints the picture of it. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Just as a newly weaned child has utter confidence in, as he leans upon his mother's breast, has utter confidence in and dependence on his mother, that is to be the disposition and attitude we're to have toward God in life. Here's great King David, mighty man and warrior, musician, and he submits himself freely. He says, my attitude toward you, God, is like that of a newly weaned child. I simply acknowledge you. I meekly submit myself to your will and purpose, and I trust you for whatever you bring. Now let's go back to James chapter 3. 
That's how this gentleness manifests itself toward God. But what about toward others? You see, it also, this, this virtue that toward God expresses itself in submission and meekness, toward man expresses itself in a humble, gracious, gentle spirit, even when wronged. Think about it for a moment. If you really believe God is in charge, including those people that wrong you and irritate you, then you can treat them with graciousness and gentleness because you know that even their response to you is under the control of God himself. And that's what this means. You see it filled out in the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple of passages to consider. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we're told that we are to restore those who sin in this spirit of gentleness, graciousness, humility. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And here Paul gives more complete commands about this virtue, this quality. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And I want you to walk or live day to day with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see the, the, the atmosphere in which this word occurs? It's one of gentleness and graciousness, concern for others. A few pages over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul pictures it this way. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other who has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You see the atmosphere in which this word occurs, but not just toward believers are we to manifest this attitude. In Titus chapter 3, Paul reminds us in verse 1, remind them, he says to Titus, remind your people there in Crete, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign, literally to blaspheme no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. If this virtue is a part of you, if you're living by God's wisdom, this virtue is a part of you. And if it's a part of you, then toward God, you submit yourself willingly and gladly, acknowledging his goodness and his providence in your life, accepting the circumstances that come. And toward others, you're gentle and you're gracious and you're kind. Let me ask you, does gentleness and meekness, do those words describe you? What about the circumstances you find yourself in right now? I don't know what they are, but whatever difficulties you face right now, do you have that spirit of David saying, I'm essentially like a weaned child. I trust you, God. I know you mean what's best. I put myself in your hands to do whatever you think is right and best. Are you whining and complaining, chafing under the purposes of God in your life? How do you respond to others? How do the people that know you best, your family, friends that know you best, how do they think of you? Do they think of you as a gentle, gracious, humble person in your interaction with them? Listen, James isn't concerned with how much you know. We're in a Bible church. We love to study the Word of God. We know a lot. You've accumulated a lot of knowledge. But James doesn't care. He's unmoved by that. He wants to know what's going on in your heart. 
He says, if you're really living by God's wisdom, if you truly fear God, if you truly understand his ways, if you're really trying to apply his word to your life, then you will be characterized by gentleness, by submission to the will and purpose of God, and gentleness and graciousness with others. And by the way, this will be there. We learn in Galatians chapter 5 that this quality is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're a believer, then you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then the Spirit is to some measure or another producing this fruit in your life. And if it's not there, then it may very well mean that you're not in Christ at all. You see, it's crucial that we, tr- we fully examine ourselves because there is a counterfeit wisdom. And that brings us to the fifth point that I want us to see. And we're just going to take a glance at it today. We'll look at it in more detail next week. Number five, James wants us to understand a clinical description of hell's wisdom. A clinical description of hell's wisdom. In verses 14 to 16, he says, let me tell you about the other kind of wisdom. You see, his point in these verses is that some people think they fear God. Some people think they understand his ways. They think they're applying God's ways and word to their lives when they have, in fact, embraced a wisdom from hell. Paul talks a lot about this, but Paul isn't the first. If you were to go back to the Old Testament, you would find passages like Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the righteous man. And let me tell you about the righteous man, the psalmist says. He doesn't walk in the counsel or advice of the wicked. He doesn't take the advice of the wicked. He's not walking in accordance with how they say he should walk. Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. But turn to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Let me just let you see this other wisdom that exists. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached of Christ to save those who believe. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, folks, there are two kinds of wisdom. There's God's wisdom, and then there's this other counterfeit wisdom. It's the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. We don't speak the wisdom that's of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. But we speak God's wisdom, verse 7. Verse 13, the things which we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Now, what's he talking about here? What what exactly does this human wisdom, this worldly wisdom, this counterfeit wisdom look like? Very important that you get this. It is not a particular set of propositions. There is God's wisdom, and then there is worldly wisdom. It is every thought, every attitude, every word, every act that is contrary to God. There is on the one hand God's wisdom revealed in his words, and there is on the other hand everything that contradicts God's revealed wisdom. That is worldly wisdom or human wisdom. It's every thought that raises itself against the knowledge of God. Listen, folks, when it comes to wisdom, there are not many paths that lead to God. There's only one. That means if you stand in the middle of 
the opportunities, paths you can take, there are 360 degrees or 360 paths you can take. 359 of those will lead you away from God and only one of those paths will take you to God and his wisdom. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says something fascinating. He says, don't be conformed to this world. What he, what he literally says is, don't allow the world to push you into its mold, into its mindset. Did you know that our age has a mindset? It has a set of values by which it lives, and we as believers are supposed to avoid that mindset? Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary and great theologian of our time, gave a very insightful list of the mindset of our culture. In closing, let me just give it to you. Here's worldly wisdom in our day. Here's the mindset of our age. Here's what you ought to avoid like the plague. Here's how our culture expresses itself, the mindset of our age. Number one, self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment. It's all about me. Life is a quest, and the self is the project. Whatever fulfills me, that's what matters. Number two, self-sufficiency. Every individual possesses what is necessary for meaning and happiness. I just need to look within to find the answers. The answers are there. I just need somebody to draw them out. Nobody outside really can help me. I can help myself. That's where self-help comes from. Self-definition. Most Americans now believe that they have the ability to define themselves. They can define what it means to be human, what it means to be male, what it means to be female. We claim the right to define marriage any way we want, to define gender any way we want, to define authority, sexuality, and everything else. We can define it. We can give it definition. We can decide that this is what it really means. Fourthly is self-absorption. Self-absorption. We'll do whatever it takes to become what we need to be. Even people who divorce are beginning to say they're divorcing because I'm just not free to be me. I've got to become me. Self-transcendence. This one's very popular. This is an obsession with creating one's own designer spirituality. More and more I'm encountering people who just pick and choose from various spiritualities and kind of construct their own deal and that's what that's what's good for them that's their truth that's their spiritual life they've just sort of you know cafeteria style chosen from different faiths and put together their own little deal self-enhancement the idea that we can extend our lives indefinitely by propping up this and taking out that and you know whatever and then there's self-security we have an obsession with health and safety, with physical health, with financial health. We're going to protect ourselves. Folks, that is the mindset of our age. And if you add to that mix evolution and a moral relativism that says there is no moral absolute, it's all relative to your situation, and the postmodern rejection of absolute truth, and you have a picture of today's wisdom or the human wisdom that dominates our world. And you know, all of that on the surface seems so wise, doesn't it? You read about it when you're standing in Barnes & Noble in some latest bestseller, and it seems so wise. Why is that? It's because like Aristotle's parable, when you live in water, you don't know you're all wet. You can live in foolishness and not know that it's stupid. God says that if you've swallowed the wisdom of the world, 
If you're following the mindset of this age, you are a fool. So how do you get on the right path? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Where do you begin? I began with it this morning. You begin at Christ. You begin following God's wisdom by finding his wisdom in his son, by giving up yourself and your way and saying, I'm going to be his disciple, his follower. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of a series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. Join us again next time for part five. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.